Throughout the last years, working from home and coping with the pandemic, I've gone for numerous morning, lunch and evening walks around my neighborhood in the eastern parts of Lund, Sweden. The area where I live has three water dams for storing stormwater in the event of extreme rains. These help to slow the water instead of overburdening the city's underground water sewage system, which would increase the risk of flooding. These dams were built to store water, but they aren't just a water management solution. When it's cold, they freeze over and provide ice skating facilities during the winter days. And as well as looking visually striking, they also provide ecosystems and habitat for animals and wildlife to thrive in. For me, this is an example of what a nature-based solution is and why they're important. Welcome to the podcast, Advancing Sustainable Solutions. Our mission is to make sustainability research more accessible and engaging for society. This episode is produced at the IIEE and is hosted by Sophie Sandin-Lumpar and Stephen Curtis. Hi everyone. Well, we're back with another episode and this month we are revisiting the concept or or should I say approach of nature-based solutions. In today's episode, we will explore the practices or skills needed to implement sustainability solutions using research conducted at our institute on nature-based solutions as an example to inspire implementation in our own contexts. And to begin, the voice you heard at the beginning of this episode is that of our PhD colleague Björn Wickenberg. He shares with us a short narrative he has written where he reflects on his closeness with nature and the many aesthetic and functional uses nature may provide in our cities. Björn defends his PhD thesis later in June, and we invited him to join us this month to share more about his research. Now, for returning listeners, this concept may be familiar to you, as this is not the first time that we explore nature-based solutions on the podcast. Way back in January 2020, on our 14th episode, we met Bjorn and introduced the concept. And that episode has gone on to be one of our most popular episodes ever, with more than 6,300 listens. The episode has also been featured on our massive open online courses specifically the course called Urban Nature, Connecting Cities, Sustainability, and Innovation. Now, the course is free and available to you on the Coursera platform. You can find the course by visiting Coursera.org, that's C-O-U-S-E-R-A dot org, or check out all of our available courses on our website at www.IIEE.LU.SE. The course is running now, and you can embark it whenever you'd like. Since this first episode with Bjorn, we received a lot of positive feedback, as well as some more questions about nature-based solutions. So we thought it was time to update and dive deeper into nature-based solutions. And I'm glad that we could talk about nature-based solutions as an approach that must be implemented in order to be meaningful. Implementation will be an important part of our discussion today, as it should be when we're speaking about any sustainability solutions, because that is the big challenge how do we implement these solutions quickly enough to avert a climate catastrophe? You know, Sophie, this is something that I reflect on 
both in my personal life, but also professionally, especially when I'm talking with students, I'm reminded of a uh, graduation speech that I heard several years ago. Um, an alumni from our master's program returned to give the commencement speech at our graduation ceremony. His name is Desta Mebratu, and he's formerly of the United Nations Environmental Program, and he's now a professor at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. He said that the solutions to address sustainability challenges are largely known. Instead, the work needed among present and future sustainability professionals will be on implementing these known solutions, but in the right contexts and in the right configurations. So in this episode, we will again define nature-based solutions and provide some examples that can be implemented in your cities. Then we will chat with Bjorn about his research and what he calls the governing strategies to implement nature-based solutions. Then finally, we will spend some time reflecting on the skills needed to implement sustainability solutions, skills like collaboration, experimentation, evaluation, and learning. the need to accelerate implementation of sustainability solutions because the latest warnings from scientists suggest the need for rapid decarbonization if we want to reach the goals set forth in the Paris Agreement in 2015. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, abbreviated the IPCC, was released in April 2022, which compiles the latest science on climate mitigation. This means reducing our greenhouse gas emissions in order to curb climate change. The clear takeaway from the latest report is that unless there are rapid and substantial emissions cuts across all sectors and all regions, the 1.5 degree target is simply out of reach. In order to reach this goal, we must radically reduce emissions by 45% by 2030 compared to 2010 levels. However, current national commitments project a 14% increase in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, despite our best efforts to address climate change. In fact, average annual greenhouse gas emissions over the last 10 years were the highest in human history. Pretty grim. Yeah, that is pretty grim. And these numbers are quite telling, I think. Action is clearly needed. And we should also mention that this latest report is the third special report from the IPCC in the last few months. The first report detailed the physical science basis for climate change. The second report summarized the latest science on climate adaptation and now the most recent on climate mitigation. All of this work will culminate in a synthesis report due out in September later this year. All right, so we have another report then coming this fall that we can uh, keep our eye out for. But the truth is that our understanding of the science continues to increase, as well as the urgency. We must acknowledge that the status quo is not compatible with a livable planet. On the podcast, in our teaching, and in conversations with our colleagues, family, and friends, we think it's important to talk about this harsh reality. We cannot run from our inaction or physics, but we must hashtag look up and recognize that every effort matters and every degree counts. I know I certainly understand that it can be easy to become paralyzed and overwhelmed. Here, I'm reminded of our podcast episode on climate anxiety and our conversation with Frida Hilander, a licensed psychologist. She says that taking action and developing a sense of community are important antidotes to climate anxiety. 
Yeah, and I also find it helpful to focus on what I, as a, an individual, can influence at my workplace and in my personal life. We are all change agents. But Stephen, while this is super important to discuss, what does this have to do with nature-based solutions? Yeah, uh, good question. Well, I think first I share this because it's important that we're all starting from the same understanding of the science and the sense of urgency, right? But as it turns out, nature-based solutions are mentioned 30 times throughout the nearly 3,000-page report released on climate mitigation this month. But before we get into what was said, maybe we should take a moment to more clearly define nature-based solutions as well as provide some examples for our listeners. We suggest that nature-based solutions are strategic interventions that use the natural properties of ecosystems in order to respond to environmental and social challenges. So let's take an example. A tree is a nature-based solution when it is planted on the streets of our cities in order to provide habitat, support biodiversity, and provide a cooling effect, for example. Otherwise, although lovely as it may be, unless the tree is planted with a deliberate intention, we suggest that it is just a tree. Other examples can include green roofs or rain gardens, maybe permeable surfaces and water retention ponds combined with vegetation. Although I have to say I'm partial to the balcony flower pot that invites pollinators or the insect hotel and birdhouse that provides habitat in our cities. And these, I think, are really simple solutions that individuals can make already. Yeah. And nature-based solutions are often inclusive of green and blue infrastructure, which involves the use of water and vegetation in our cities to provide a wide range of services to both humans and the environment. This is in contrast to gray infrastructure, which describes human engineered infrastructure, often made out of concrete, asphalt, or metal, like roads, buildings, and pipes. I don't know why, Sophie, when we talk about gray, green, and blue infrastructure, I always think of gray infrastructure as ugly and green and blue infrastructure is, is beautiful. Uh, and, and I think in talking about infrastructure is important, right? Because infrastructure is a key contributing factor to climate change, especially fossil energy infrastructure or concrete infrastructure, as we said, in, in our buildings. But blue-green infrastructure can also help to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So for example, the latest IPCC report suggests that nature-based solutions, such as green roofs, help reduce the need for cooling buildings while also reducing energy required for cooling. So thus, nature-based solutions are seen as both adaptive and mitigating. They're adaptive in that they provide a cooling effect and mitigating in that they decrease energy consumption used for cooling, thus reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The IPCC highlights additional benefits too of nature-based solutions. So for example, nature-based solutions can be known to help reduce heat stress, improve air quality, reduce noise, maybe enhance urban biodiversity, as well as the risk of floods. Nature-based solutions can also be used to sequester carbon, as well as contributing to well-being and local development in our, in our cities. But nature-based solutions should not be seen as the only solution, but rather part of the toolbox available to governments, property owners, and individuals. For example, the IPCC suggests that three broad mitigation strategies have been found to be effective when implemented concurrently in cities. The first strategy is replacing or reducing less sustainable energy or material use. The second strategy is electrification and low-emission energy infrastructure. And the final strategy is enhancing carbon uptake and storage through nature-based solutions. 
While nature-based solutions have been identified by the IPCC and broader research community to be cost-effective adaptations to climate change, there are several challenges that hinder their implementation. Of course, context matters, and their impact and effectiveness will vary. For example, research suggests that areas with limited private property, as well as fewer overall real estate transactions, reduce the likelihood of implementing nature-based solutions. Additionally, site-specific factors may also induce unwanted effects. So for example, it's been known that vegetation interactions associated with nature-based solutions with particular types of air pollution or sea salt may actually cause acidification, which then has a negative impact on terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems. Other challenges exist too, like limited private financing and limited business models to encourage the implementation of these solutions. Therefore, we will now spend the remainder of the episode talking about implementation of nature-based solutions, also abbreviated as NBS. Next, we will interview our PhD colleague Bjorn as he introduces three governing strategies for urban planners as well as skills to support implementation. Those skills are collaboration, experimentation, evaluation, and learning. We are joined by Bjorn Wickenbay. He is a PhD student at our department researching nature-based solutions. And he brings more than a decade of professional experience working at a municipal government. In fact, at the city of Malmö, located here in Southern Sweden, specifically with issues relating to sustainable urban development. And I think what's super cool about Bjorn, right, is that he's able to bring this experience with him into his PhD research. His research has contributed to various projects, including Naturevation, the Urban Nature Project, and the City to City Learning Lab. His work spans Swedish municipalities and European capitals, as well as engages researchers, municipalities, and practitioners. And later this June, Bjorn will be defending his PhD thesis, which explores the translation and implementation of nature-based solutions. And specifically, what I'm hoping that we can talk about in today's discussion is issues relating to experimentation, learning, and knowledge production. So without further ado, please welcome Bjorn to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's so nice of you to have me. And you're coming back to the podcast. This isn't your first time with us. Great to have you back. Last time we talked about how nature-based solutions are more than just a tree. This time we want to talk about a little bit more why they're more than just a concept. What do you mean when you say that nature-based solutions is more than just a concept? Well, MBS and nature-based solutions are often refer to, uh, just as you point out, a concept. But uh, I'm, I'm meaning that it's more than just a theoretical idea. Uh, I prefer to describe MBS in terms of a comprehensive and demanding approach reflecting the complexity of planning, designing, implementing, maintaining, and governing sustainability in cities. So it includes a variety of solutions. I mean, you can hear that by the name, nature-based solutions. And these are applicable across scales and land use contexts, requires integration in, in urban planning processes, and it requires new and innovative business models and application of participatory governance involving a lot of stakeholders at different levels. So yeah, as such, it represents much more than a concept. It's 
a holistic planning approach addressing the why, what, who, and how for achieving sustainability through integrating nature in cities. All right, so Bjorn, now you have been working with nature-based solutions for the past four years or so. Can you share some examples of nature-based solutions from your research? Yes, definitely. I, I should be able to, you know, after these years. And uh, there are some different examples that I have included in my research, although I have been generally more interested in the processes that enable the governing and implementation of the, of the various solutions. So rather than taking an interest in the solutions per se. However, uh, together with colleagues here at the IIIEE Institute, I was interested in what could be learned from two larger sustainability projects in Malmö. And more specifically, these related to an open stormwater system, which was part of a retrofitting of uh, the Augustenboy neighborhood. And, uh, and the other example relates to the biodiversity project, where they tested a new type of uh, green roof um, and innovated around the idea of what to do with a green roof. And, and these normal sedum roof that most people know about uh, when we're talking about green roof was then abandoned in favor of a new type of green roof with a thicker substrate and uh, which mimicked the local flora and fauna in the area to enhance biodiversity. So this was called the Seashore Green Roof Project. So these are two examples that I've included in my research. But for me personally, it has been useful to relate MBS to the most nearby example, which is a stormwater dam in my neighborhood that I reflected on in the beginning of this podcast. And here I would like to ask all of you listeners, do you know any MBS in your home city or even in your neighborhood? And what does that MBS mean to you? And what are the benefits of that MBS that you can think of? Really important question to reflect on. I'm sitting here going like, hmm, what is near me? Uh, you know, I think what I'm trying to do now is find ways that I can integrate birds and bees into my environment. So I'm sure that there are creative ways that cities are also looking to integrate birds and bees to improve biodiversity and, and, and pollination and, and so on in our cities. Yeah. And actually, uh, if I may, uh, Stephen, we don't have to sit and wait for cities to take action. You, you, I mean, each and one of us can, if possible, plant a tree uh, that actually you know, attracts birds and bees, as you say, to enhance biodiversity in your local environment. You know, we talked a little bit about what are these nature-based solutions. I think then I want to know from you, Bjorn, why do you think it's important to focus on implementation of these solutions in an urban environment? Yeah, that's, a, that's an important question, Stephen. So from the perspective of sustainable urban development, which is a, a goal, um, the MBS concept or approach, perhaps we should say now, um, the concept itself is not really interesting unless it materializes into action. At least that's, that's my take on it. So a core argument for me in my research is that implementation is conditional for the potential of MBS to unfold. And that's not rocket science at all. But this means also that conceptual ideas, mostly formulated in research and in policy spheres, around MBS, they need to be translated into more actionable operational knowledge. And of course, uh, also turn into actions in cities. Right, but 
why do you think it is important to support the implementation of NBS? So when we think of sustainability, it is important that we go from theory to practice, from saying to doing. And here, implementation means getting these solutions on the ground. But we also know that it, it, this is easier said than done. Uh, there are numerous barriers that stand in the way. And that's why we need, to more, uh, need more knowledge about these different barriers and, and more importantly, how to overcome these barriers. So implementation uh, means that, that we can learn by doing. And here it is important that the learning is deliberate, that we implement nature-based solutions with the intention to learn to change. And um, if we consider that the, the once we have these solutions on the ground, we can then see what went wrong or what was successful. For example, how to successfully involve different stakeholders in the process and their knowledge as part of the processes, or how to engage with practitioners and researchers in the process. And then from there, we can replicate and mainstream these solutions. Yeah, I mean, Bjorn, I, I like this notion of implementation as moving from saying and doing, and, and here it's about learning and being deliberate when we implement these things. And no doubt you've probably learned a lot of things in your research that can support implementation. I'm wondering who do you think can benefit from the learning that you have gathered over your research, maybe beyond an, an, a traditional academic audience? Well, in my research, I have a dual focus on research and practice. And I think that academics on the one hand can learn from from the practical and operational aspects that I highlight in my research. For example, the importance of collaboration and co-production of knowledge. As for urban planners, uh, my research presents a few key messages around the importance of experimenting, learning, and producing new knowledge. And, and then in turn, what is important there is, is, is um, under which conditions. Can you work with these uh, three things? So, for example, applying reflexive and participatory governance approaches and or engaging in collaborative processes of testing new solutions. So, Bjorn, this is really interesting. And I hear you mentioning a lot of uh, experimentation and learning. And I think these are keys uh, in also in evaluation, of course, and how we then uh, develop skills and become better and doing things better the next time around. And I know that you and your research propose three governing strategies for planners. Can you tell us a bit more about what these are and why they are important? So, yeah, that's a really good question, Sophie. Um, uh, I, I propose three strategies uh, around experimentation, learning and knowledge production. And with that, I mean that we need to test through experimentation because it enables change at a much more comprehensible or doable scale. And uh, that is also important for learning, which is the second strategy. Learning, or perhaps more importantly, relearning, is necessary if we're to see and do things differently, which of course demands a lot of deliberate reflection, especially collective reflection as part of urban planning and governance processes. And then thirdly, uh, learning is closely related to knowledge production and the need to produce new knowledge on how to advance MBS implementation in cities. And here we need to look at both evidence-based knowledge, where science can do much to help, and practical knowledge related to 
taking action and collaborating for urban nature-based transformations. You have not talked a lot about how cities can work with NBS, but for our listeners, are there other actions that they can take to support the implementation of nature-based solutions? Uh, absolutely. Um, last time when you interviewed me, I said it's important to raise awareness and, and learn more about how NBS can help us create more sustainable and just cities. And uh, a, a concrete action for you listeners is to, to, to check up our MOOC on working with uh, urban nature and learn more from that. So if you want to learn more and, and take action, uh, you can check out that urban nature, connecting cities, nature, and innovation. And as always, these courses are, of course, free. Free free for, for anyone. And you can find it on the Coursera platform. Otherwise, you can link to the course on our website. And that's www.iiwe.lu.se. And uh, you can see Urban Nature course as well as all the other MOOCs that we offer yeah. freely um, for students to learn about sustainability solutions. But I digress, Bjorn. No doubt yeah. you have more recommendations for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, I think, uh, as I said the last time, it's really important to, um, to ask your local politicians or, or engage in politics, even if you, if you have the time, to know uh, how your city adapt to climate change and, and what the city is doing to work more with nature, for example, using uh, MBS as part of that approach. So what we talked about before, uh, another thing to do is, of course, uh, planting a tree or, or, or planting these um, uh, plants in your, in your garden that attract pollinators and bees. And, uh, and that's, that's a concrete action to take. Yeah, these are some really good suggestions, Bjorn. Thanks for sharing these. And like Stephen said in the beginning of this interview, you will defend your thesis in June. Bjorn, I just have to ask you, how are you feeling? And uh, which preparations remains before the big day? Thanks for asking. Uh, I'm feeling quite fine, especially now being on your show, the podcast, and talking to you guys. Um, yes, that's true. Defense is coming up, and I'm preparing for it, and, and actually still working on a final paper, so no time to check out there. Uh, not yet. Um, but I, I'm really looking forward to, to defend uh, the thesis and uh, also realizing what you and other colleagues have, have told me. Uh, this is a, a once in a lifetime thing to do. So it's about, you know, having fun and enjoying as much as I can. And then I will be ready to more than ready to, to celebrate this PhD journey with you colleagues and, and, and family and friends. And that's important too, I think. I agree. Celebration is so important, especially an accomplishment like this, Bjorn. You know, I was involved in your recruitment uh, when you joined us here at the Institute. And then Bjorn and I ended up sharing an office for, you know, four years, interrupted a little bit by the pandemic, I suppose. But no doubt, I just want to celebrate you here on the podcast and all of the growth and learning yourself that you've undertaken during this PhD. I'm super proud and super happy to call you a colleague and a friend. Um, not to push you out the door too soon, but I'm curious what awaits you beyond your PhD? What do you have in store looking ahead? Um, I have a few options now up in the air that I, I juggle with, but um, I might return back to, to the city I used to work in, in Malmö. Uh, but I, I also, want to stay in academia. So I have like one, I feel like in between two worlds and I do want to keep these two worlds alive. So 
ideally, I dream of, uh, you know, working in both practice and research. That sounds good, Bjorn. We uh, look forward to uh, seeing what comes next for you. But uh, if our listeners want to learn more about your research or uh, what you're doing, where may they find you? Well, I hope that <laughs> I will still feature on, on our internal, I mean, our triple I double E webpage uh, still after the defense. Uh, otherwise, I'm using uh, ResearchGate, which is a research portal uh, that any, anyone can, can access. And then I most likely will have to update my LinkedIn profile too, um, now that I will potentially be out of job. Well, then certainly catch Bjorn either on the IIIW website, ResearchGate, or check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, we are so grateful that you took the time to speak with us today in between your preparation for your PhD. Both Sophie and I wish you all the best, and uh, thanks for joining. Thank Bjorn for joining us. Like us, I think he really values the translation of research into practice and discusses the need to align rhetoric and action, what he calls knowing, saying, and doing sustainability. He also suggests that the implementation of nature-based solutions requires the willingness among stakeholders to change existing norms and practices in favor of more sustainable choices. Bjorn mentioned several prerequisites that are required to support the implementation of nature-based solutions, those being collaboration, experimentation, evaluation, and learning. We see these as practices or skills that are essential in order to implement any sustainability solutions. Now, I know that these concepts can feel fluffy and difficult to discuss. Of course we need collaboration, duh. Of course we need to evaluate and learn from our experiences. But research and experience show us that these practices are taken for granted, largely due to limited time and resources. And I'm certainly sympathetic, right? And I experience the same thing in my own context as well. However, if we skip or rush these important practices, we risk losing trust and damaging our reputations. And not only that, we risk also not being effective or doing the same mistakes over and over again, failing to learn from others. There is also a risk of rebound effects. Rebound effects are unanticipated secondary responses that may reduce or even offset the positive effects of any action or that may reinforce negative responses. A good example is energy efficiency measures that you may take in your home. Imagine that you install energy efficient windows that keep the heat inside your house. This means that your energy bill will be lower, but this may prompt you to increase the indoor temperature, which means that you now use more energy than you did before. Another example could be the installation of a nature-based solution, say a park in a city. But this park may then attract people to visit the area by car to enjoy its aesthetic, beauty, or other services. The IPCC cautions about rebound effects too. Research suggests that rebound effects may diminish absolute emission savings by 20 to 40%, with some estimates even higher. Yeah, and I think that's why then these practices or skills are super important, right? Collaboration, experimentation, evaluation, and learning, they should be executed in order to support implementation in the right context and in the right way, as well as to minimize these rebound effects. 
Now, we wish to discuss each of these practices in a little bit more detail so as not to take them for granted. And now let's start with collaboration. To collaborate simply means the act of working together. However, there are many not so simple decisions that need to be taken by the organizing party to ensure meaningful collaboration. For example, who to collaborate with, when to involve them in the process, what objective or rationale drives the collaboration, and so on. You'll also need to decide the timing and venue for collaboration. How often and where do we meet are also very simple but very important decisions. And this impacts who may be involved. For larger participatory processes, inclusion of a variety of viewpoints and perspectives will ensure that the best decisions are taken for the community, as well as inspire trust and social acceptance. But what about the actual process of collaboration? When viewed as a skill, there are many things that we can do to improve our own ability to facilitate and participate in collaborations. For example, professional yet authentic communication, transparency in our motivation to participate, as well as active listening, all can go a long way. But for larger processes that involve many stakeholders, you'll need a skilled facilitator too. A facilitator creates opportunities and provides resources to a group of people that enable them to make progress and succeed in reaching their objective. For example, this involves creating an open and inclusive space for dialogue, giving clear instructions, curbing groupthink and circular discussions, translating individual inputs into the broader discussion, maybe also keeping energy high, as well as managing expectations, keeping time and being flexible. My goodness, the role of a facilitator is super important. I am always trying to strive to improve my own facilitation skills, often experimenting with different methods and approaches in my teaching or in meetings. If you're interested in learning about specific methods, I can recommend two resources. The first is the Hyper Island Toolbox, and the second is the Design Kit. Both are web resources with over 100 specific methods for facilitators. Wow, Stephen, what I'm hearing is that a, a good facilitator requires time and training. Uh, I, for myself, will certainly check out some of these resources that you just mentioned. But then, tying back, time is likely the most important ingredient for meaningful collaboration. We suggest not to overlook the time it takes to prepare, for example, providing enough information and resources for collaborators to reflect ahead of time. I believe that many of us have turned up to a meeting unprepared maybe because we were not given enough time or we did not take enough time to do so. Regardless, being unprepared risks that the input and discussion become superficial or shallow. Research and experience suggest proper time to prepare is required to ensure meaningful collaboration. Because collaboration and inclusion cannot simply be checkboxes, but must be meaningful activities for planner and participants, especially to increase social acceptance and facilitate public trust. The second practice we'll explore is experimentation. Experimentation can take on many forms, which I guess is the very essence of experimentation, to try new and different things, to challenge our perceptions of how things maybe should be done, and to dare to be visionary and push the boundaries of what we believe is even possible. For example, we may experiment with the design of the solutions, the configuration of stakeholders contributing to their success, or the funding or revenue models that sees the solution come to life. But what is important is that experimentation takes place in a context, providing the opportunity for evaluation and learning. A common venue for experimentation is a living lab, a privileged space or time 
for collaboration. Experimentation is, however, not devoid of criticism. Critics argue that experimentation is less efficient than top-down governance strategies. Others suggest that experimentation promotes productification, that all of these small experimentation projects are funded, but which are time-bound and do not have enough resources to evaluate and learn in order to scale or translate to additional contexts. Furthermore, some fear that experimentation tends to promote technology and innovation, that something must be created through experimentation, whereas the most sustainable thing may be changing our behavior to do nothing or to do less. I think despite these criticisms, though, research and experience suggest that experimentation does have value, especially with adequate time and resources for collaboration. I think of experimentation a little like practice, right? In order to be good at something, like playing football or the guitar, I must practice. And through practice, I'm able to recognize patterns and improve my ability to maybe score a goal or play a challenging chord progression. I like that analogy, Stephen. But how do we make these patterns explicit in a way that we can learn from them? Of course, we turn to evaluation. If we think about it, evaluation is embedded in almost every part of our daily life as we assess different options of both small and big things in order to make decisions on which clothes to wear, which career path to pursue, or which plants to plant in our garden or balcony. The same goes for implementation, where evaluation is the act of carefully assessing the worth and value of any action, retrospectively or prospectively. Evaluation thus creates knowledge and insights, which can be translated into lessons learned that then tell us how and in what context this knowledge may be useful. This simply means that evaluation should not just be ticking a box and moving on to some other task, but rather that the learning is to be used to inform decisions on what worked, what did not work, maybe what can be improved for the future, and so on and so on. This requires deliberate evaluation strategies, which call for time and collaboration in order to ensure that useful insights can be used and shared widely. Evaluation is always important, but maybe arguably even more important when we are experimenting and trying out new things. For example, implementing nature-based solutions. Evaluation will help us understand how different solutions worked in different contexts in order to scale up solutions based on evidence and experience. And ultimately, this leads to overcoming some of the rebound effects that reduce the effectiveness of our efforts to curb climate change. Evaluation can help us to determine what we learn, but we also must explore how we learn. In my own research and experience teaching in our master's programs, how we learn is maybe even more important than the content itself. Because if we are unable to recall or integrate knowledge into our own context, the time spent learning may ultimately be wasted. And as we've discussed, time is such a valuable commodity. Here, we suggest three practices that you can engage in to improve how you learn. These are translation, social learning, and reflexivity. When reading text or listening to a presentation, I often find it helpful to translate the content in a way that mirrors my experiences or context. So as my particular research explores renewable energy deployment, I may translate and extend our discussion here today on collaboration to explore the stakeholders involved in installing solar panels, for example. Collaboration in that sense could include a range of actors from the municipality to architects, to homeowners and housing companies, to solar panel retailers and installers. If we were to have a collaboration, I would think about what objective we may have, 
I would consider the venue and timing for collaboration that would ensure a positive outcome. This translation and extension captures the important aspects of collaboration in a way that helps me remember them in my context. My favorite practice to improve my own learning is learning from others. This is called social learning and is an automatic and unconscious practice that takes place when we observe others behaving in a certain way. Of course, this helps us understand maybe how to queue for food in a cafeteria or how to interact in a new workplace setting. However, we can also make social learning more explicit by observing a behavior that we value or admire in others and then reflect deliberately on the specific actions that this person engages in. I often do this when listening to other podcasts or attending events in order to improve my own ability to communicate and facilitate. We can also imagine extending social learning to the environment by observing nature as well as interactions between nature and humans. What can we learn from nature which may help implement nature-based solutions in our own cities? This openness and willingness to observe, reflect, and integrate learning from around us speaks to our third practice of reflexivity. Reflexivity is the process of examining our own feelings, our own actions and motivations, as well as their influence on our behavior. As a prerequisite for learning, this means acknowledging that we can learn from others, that we're able to listen, and that we're willing to admit when we are wrong. When I have the time, I practice reflexivity through journaling or being very communicative with supportive friends and colleagues. And finally, on learning, I would say that the most important thing is to write things down. And if you have time, organize this knowledge in a way that is easily searchable. As good as we think our memory is, I'm afraid to tell you it is not. I'm sure that many of us can relate to forgetting or overlooking things of all sorts. And the thing is that ideas or insights that are generated through collaboration, experimentation, and evaluation are lost if they are not cataloged and made accessible in a meaningful way. I, I agree. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a challenge to find the time or the motivation to write these things down. But I think, if anything, this is what I take away from our discussion, and I hope our listeners take away as well. Because a common thread is that practices of collaboration, experimentation, evaluation, and learning, they take time. Skipping or rushing these practices risks duplicating efforts that may not work or lead to unanticipated rebound effects. Unfortunately, time is not something we have, both within our organizations, but also in the amount of time that we have to implement radical and meaningful emissions cuts in order to prevent a climate catastrophe. Thus, I argue that taking the time to collaborate, experiment, evaluate, and learn maybe ultimately reduces time wasted, which we cannot afford. In this episode, we discuss the implementation of nature-based solutions by exploring their need in response to the latest IPCC report, as well as specific practices or skills that we all can use to improve implementation of these solutions in our own context. Bjorn shares with us that successful implementation requires good relationships, transparent communication, trust among stakeholders, and inclusive participatory processes that creates social acceptance. We celebrate Bjorn and his research, and we wish him well with his PhD defense later in June. You know, he shared some interesting reflections with us about just how much interest there has been 
in nature-based solutions since he started researching this topic about four years ago. And I think this is what inspires me, right, to see that there are so many people and organizations interested in nature-based solutions as one approach to overcome our very clear and very urgent sustainability challenges. In fact, we are seeing more and more cities engaging with nature-based solutions and more policies that are supporting the widespread implementation of these solutions for a whole host of issues. Here, I think governments, industry and individuals can do their part to invite nature into our cities. Because while there is a huge opportunity, the implementation of nature-based solutions is still underfunded. Either we need to find viable business models for nature-based solutions, or we need to prioritize our economic and governance systems to meaningfully allocate funding to remove carbon, providing cooling effects and capturing stormwater through nature-based solutions. The latest IPCC report suggests that the annual investment in nature-based solutions would need to be approximately between the range of 110 and 135 billion US dollars per year, in addition to all of the other changes required. Thus, while practices like collaboration, experimentation, evaluation, and learning are important, we also need to see governments and industry devote much more funding to these vital solutions. Once again, we thank Björn for joining us on this episode. And as always, we are so grateful to Franz Lebotson, our production assistant. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to another episode. We are so grateful that you continue to support us, and we love what we do. So until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.